1: Hey, 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 oh. I said, hey.
2: What's up, you guys? It's Sam Chansky here with Diddy TV at the historic RCA Studio B in Nashville. I'm with Justin Croft, the studio manager. What's up, Justin? How are you? I'm doing well. We're going to head inside and see what's going on. He's going to show us all the ins and outs of the studio, all the history, so why don't we go ahead and inside and see what we got happening.
1: You're going to love it.
0: So, presently, we are in the control room of the studio, the live room is just out there. Um, this was always the control room, never had any other one for B proper. Um, we are looking at a brand new desk that we just put in uh, not too long ago.
2: And there's like tours going on right now all around us. Yeah, right?
0: that's, a, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. So we, we um, I always tell people on a, on a good day we'll easily have 500 people come through the building. That's like not an understatement. And on an average day, probably two or 300 people. From all around know, the world, from right? all around the world, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of visitors we don't get a lot of local folks, we do get a lot of people from around, mm-hmm. and then we get a whole lot of people from the UK and uh, all over the world, really.
2: What's sort of the number one thing that people are most excited about when they get here?
0: You know, I think the thing that, that drives people here, I mean, obviously, the artists that record here are a big component, but the thing about the, this place that's that I think is special is it's completely authentic, like, there's, yeah. it is the same place, you know? and. And though there have been changes over the years, they've all been small and they've been in service to, you know, honoring what's already here at the building. So it's never been, you know, turned into something it wasn't. It's still the same studio that it was back in the late 50s through the 60s and the 70s.
2: I know there are songs that are recorded here, innumerable songs that were just hits, hit after hit. But, you know, I know there's uh, artists that you're supposed to say, like Elvis and Waylon, (laughs) that's part of the pitch. But Uh when you we mm-hmm. discovering this place for yourself. What was it that you were listening to that was like oh, catching yeah. your, you know, your ear?
0: Sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the records that Roar Orbison did here, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, that's definitely one of the ones that we talk about a lot, but I think those records stand the test of time. Songs like Crying and Only the Lonely and Running Scared and Blah. Yeah. I mean, just the, the way they use the room to its full capacity, the, the kind of like lushness of those arrangements mm-hmm. and everything, I think that shows off what the studio can do. Um, So Roy is one, and like a later example, Wilson Pickett did one record here that was not very successful, (laughs) but it's a fantastic record. It's called um, Ms. Lena's Boy, and it came out in the early 70s. And it's a totally different vibe from from the Orbison thing, it's like, you hear the uh, you hear the sound of the room from the early days in mm-hmm. in, in the Roy stuff and in Elvis and, and the Everly brothers and things like that. But as you go, you know, they they did change some things about the room over the years. They put carpet down and made these little huts for the drums and the bass and stuff and really dried up the sound of the room. And I always pointed those two examples as like, This is the way Studio B sounded in the early days and this is how it sounded a little bit later. And I think now where we're at now is a nice balance between those two. I think the room is a, is a outstanding sounding room. It's not too dead, it's not too live. It has a lot of nice spots.
2: <laughs> and it's still an active recording studio, but sometimes at night, right?
0: It, yeah, we, are, we, are fully, uh, we are fully stocked and ready to go. Um, we don't do probably as much recording as we could, mm-hmm. um, but that's, that's not for any kind of technical reason. Um, the last record that came out of here came out in October of last year, and that was uh, uh, by a guy named JD McPherson.
2: Yeah, I read that he would come here at night and sort of yes, right. after the
0: tours and, and yeah. set up
2: and play. And
0: it was uh, how quick can we, how how soon can we get in after the? Because ca- our calendar is a little different every day, so it's like come in, set up. They couldn't leave anything set up either. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that's not the way most sessions go. You know, you set up once and you stay that way. <laughs>
2: Justin, tell us a little bit about what we're looking at right here.
0: There's a few pieces of equipment <clears throat> that are still hanging around from back in the day. We don't have everything, but we have a few things. We have a couple of, of nice kind of early serial number LA-2As here. Um, and then we have some salvage equipment that we, um, that our, our wonderful tech Johnny built out of some period. This is not from here, but this is period era preamps and stuff. Wow. Um, up above us, one of the most interesting things, and hopefully we can go up there with you in a little bit, is the echo chamber, which is right above our heads up here, which is active. It's just a little room up there, curvy walls. And we can, uh, you know, of course, from the control room, we can send whatever signal we want to a speaker up there, let it reverberate, and bring it back down to the console. Also, across the way, we have 3 emt ENT-140 plate reverbs, which are
2: fantastic. <laughs> What's, what, tell me about that. What is that?
0: Uh, so, a plate reverb is, uh, the, the way I always try to explain it is, Rather than vibrating the air in a room, we're going to vibrate a big piece of sheet metal in a Mm -hmm. box, Um, but these just do it in a really beautiful way. Um, Early on, that chamber that we have was the only kind of artificial reverb they had here. I mean, it was the only kind that really existed at the Mm -hmm. time. So on the early records, you know that before the early 60s, everything echo-wise in here was just the chamber upstairs. So, when they got the EMTs, those are made in West Germany. So, okay. that gives you an idea about time period, right? Uh-huh. Rather than vibrating the air in that room, we're vibrating that sheet, piece of sheet metal. But it does it in such a smooth way, and you can also control the decay time, right? So, you can make it a longer or shorter echo. And then they started using those almost exclusively <laughs> after that. You can really hear the change. Um, our, our really, our wonderful engineer back in the day was a guy named Bill Porter, mm-hmm. and there's stories about Bill doing all sorts of things to make this room and to make the records sound special here. And one thing he did, uh, reportedly, was take those plates up into their own little room and then chilled them with oh. the AC. And that gave some sort of a response that he was looking for. Uh, maybe tightened up the metal or something. I don't know what his theory was. but It's really cool how
2: much yeah. experimentation went on here.
0: A ton. I mean, the thing about this room is in the early days, um, the walls were all flat out in the tracking room. And anytime you have parallel flat walls, that leads to lots of acoustical problems. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a great room (laughs) to start with. It was probably the greatest room around, uh, definitely here in town at the time. But over the years, they honed it and they kind of figured out the best way to use it. Uh, Another thing that Bill did was build these little pyramids out of ceiling tile and hung them from the ceiling in there. And that helped break up some of those standing waves and stuff. Why pyramids? Do you know? You know, I don't know. Maybe because it goes together. Porter's Pyramids is what oh, they call them. <laughs> what but I guess it could have literation? been Porter's Orbs or Porter's Cubes or something. But uh, he made them out of uh, just regular, like, ceiling tile. Yeah. So maybe it was easier to cut, like, triangles and, and glue those together or something. That makes sense. So, I mean, uh, he took 60 bucks out of petty cash to do that. He just took that upon himself, you know. Uh, he was also the guy that helped figure out the best places in the room for instruments. So because we're... Uh, the concept of the studio is not like studios today where we have a lot of isolation. Mm-hmm. Places like each person can sort of be in their own space. Not here. Everyone was on the floor together live. And so you really had to figure out how to use the room, where to put people.
2: And he would um, even go so far as to mark those spots in the mark room. Mark those right? spots on the floor.
0: We have a vocal sweet spot that we still mark out there. and I, I can you still you, can see it? You can still see it. And yeah, I look forward to and that. And, and I can give you a rough idea of where everything else was. The other thing is there were no headphones used here until probably... Jeez, maybe late 60s, but definitely early 70s. So they were just... The players were all recording at once, generally. There weren't a lot of overdubs done. Mm-hmm. And they were all in the room together at the same time. So the recording volume was relatively low compared to today. So drummers, I know have heard stories about drummers not being yeah. trusted to play with sticks yeah. until they could prove that they could play quietly and dynamically with sticks. They would make them play with brushes.
2: That probably narrowed it down didn't. a little bit. Yeah, a
0: little bit. But, <laughs> but some, I mean, a lot of these people... A lot of the session players were really at like a jazz level of yeah. playing, and so they had that kind of finesse and technique mm-hmm. to be able to do that. But yeah, it, a lot of the early history of this place is just using what they had, you know, and and, and what they had was turned out to be a brilliant room. <laughs> well,
2: that's amazing. So, Where are we headed next?
0: You know, we could let's go in the let's go in the studio for a minute, actually. Dream. Now we're in Studio B proper. This is the tracking room or the live room, however you want to put it. And and you'll notice what I was saying about the walls in here. Mm -hmm. Now, in the early 70s, they did this sort of zigzag beveling thing to fix that problem. Um, But you still have, I always like to point out to people, there's still one parallel surface right between the floor (laughs) and the ceiling. So a lot of times they would put a rug down in here. Um, To give you an idea of of some of the stuff we're seeing in here, I mean, uh, a lot of these instruments are, are from the period were the same ones that were used on the records. you know, the, From the 50s? From the 50s, 60s. You know, we opened in 1957. Right. <clears throat> um, and this piano was here when we opened in wow. 1957. It's older than the building, though. A lot of things we have are, are older than the building. This was built in 1942 by Steinway. And it actually it started its life at NBC in New York. And then it was in their repair shop briefly before it came down here. And it's been here ever since. So all the records where you hear a nice, you know, grand piano sound. It was a weird chord choice. We're all this piano. So this was played by Elvis, by Floyd Kramer. He did the song Last Date on this piano. And just about every session this was used. We still keep it tuned. It's still in good working order and everything. And if you look close, you'll see that the, the finger marks and things have never been taken away. I mean, that would, that would sort of eat away at the authenticity, you know? Yeah. If we changed that. So it's a wonderful piece. And it's
2: still in use in the recording sessions. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, we use it all the time. And it sounds great. You know, the the Yamaha C7 has really become kind of the go-to studio piano. But um, from my understanding, back in the day, it was Baldwin's and Steinway's, at least in Nashville. Has it ever moved anywhere? It hasn't been out of the room Wow. since (laughs) since then. I don't think it even fits. So anytime we have to clean or anything, we have to move it, you know, and kind of go around it, so to speak. Um, But yeah, that's a really amazing piece. We were talking about spots in the room, right? Right. The piano would typically be about there, but a lot of times they would turn it around and use the lid like its own baffle, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, (coughs) Drums, funny enough, would actually be kind of along the wall over here. here Here-ish or so. And uh, stand-up bass, not too far from there. like to keep those people together. We didn't use electric bass a whole lot until later, so most things were stand-up. Acoustic guitar, kind of in the middle of the room. Your electric guitars (coughs) would be with the amps up on stands like those are now. Um, and the players generally sitting down so that they could hear themselves really and they didn't have to turn up very loud. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if your speaker cone is almost at your ear level, you can kind of keep your volume down and they'd be sort of along the wall. Um, your vocal groups would be sort of back in here. A lot of times just surrounding one mic. I mean in the early days, there were only 12 inputs on that console. So um. that's a maximum of you know, 12 mics going at once. So a lot of stuff was done with people surrounding mics. And this here is the vocal sweet spot we we're talking about. Right here. So, I mean, it's misleading to say that every vocal ever was done here, but a lot were certainly done here.
2: Tell us a little about, about what we're looking at right here, Justin. So,
0: this tape machine is a pretty good example of something that would have been used in the early days here. This is an Ampex machine. This, is a, this, in fact, is a mono machine. Um, and the great thing is it's older than the building, 1955, but wow. it's still perfectly functional. We use this to demo. We do a lot of educational stuff mm-hmm. these days. And so, um, one of the things we often do is show students how to do a tape splice. And I'm always surprised because kids still even know what a cassette is, you know. Yeah. And that's sort of a good starting point for how to use something like this. But yeah, this was actually in use here. Um, the case is is, is uh, just something they put this in. This might have been mounted vertically uh, in a rack here. But it was a machine similar to this that they used quite a lot—a um, three-track machine. Another Apex um, and they stuck with the three track format for a long time. Again that same engineer Bill Porter really liked to use it and he would often just use two channels on that and leave one open in case they had to do Mm -hmm. an overdub. But um, they worked uh, on that and did uh, numerous numerous records just on three tracks so that's pretty humbling I think to think about (laughs) today (laughs) where we have as many tracks as we can handle right. Um, I'm sure it sort of made the
2: creativity a little bit More specific in a way, you know, intentional Mm -hmm. because they had to know that this is how we have to do it in this many takes. You know what I mean? Now there's so many ways you can do it infinitely. You know, with digital. So I find that really interesting.
0: Yeah, I like to tell people that we've in in the realm of recording, we've gone from like a a capture point of view where we're just going to try to. as accurately as we can or as, as cool as we can capture a performance, right? Mm-hmm. To like almost a post-production mentality where yeah. we'll do that later yeah, kind I'll of fix thing. it over there. And you know. that's, the, that's the real, I think, sea change for, mm-hmm. for recording these days. But yeah, back back then with just one track that forced you, everyone everything you wanted to get on the record had to go down together at the same time. And then if you did make a mistake it was either do another take or uh, pull the tape. Well, I'll show you. Pull the tape off the block here. I mean, off the heads, put it into the block and chop it, you know, literally cut it with a razor blade Yeah, and edit together another take. And that was it. Um, So, yeah, completely different mentality. People got really good at it, though. Um, One of the famous stories is a session here for Elvis in 1960, Are You Lonesome Tonight, which was a song they decided to record in the dark. Yeah. that's a great song. Yeah. <laughs> you know that one? Good. Yeah, yeah. It's a very old he song. He struggled
2: with the lyrics of that song, I believe,
0: when he would perform live. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he would play with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Standing there without any hair, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when they cut it, uh, they did it in the dark. and, and uh, they did. I think they did about five takes, and the fifth take was really good, except at the end, one of the background singers, which were the Jordanaires, uh, flubbed a note, and so they just re-recorded the end, mm-hmm. right? Tonight is the last word. And then the splice in that song actually happens between the syllables, two at night, wow. on the last word. And, I mean, it's pretty imperceptible, I yeah. think. I mean, if you, we've listened very closely a lot. And you can't um, catch it, really. You can't really catch it. Um, but there's another mistake in there that's kind of funny. There's a little kind of click sound at the end of that record. And uh, as the story goes, uh, reportedly that's because uh, Elvis hit his head on the microphone. Cause it was dark at the end of that take, and that's still in there as far as I know. The last sort of remaster I listened to and everything, it's still there, so funny stuff like that. And there's records, um, if you listen really closely to um, uh, Floyd Kramer's Last Date, there's someone coughs right in the middle of the record, so there's all kinds of stuff like that on the recordings, but I think it only adds to the feel, you know,
2: along with all the country music that was going, you know, through Nashville from that time all the way till currently, yeah pop music was also being recorded
0: yeah there's all I mean the 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 truth about this studio um, of course national is always associated with country music but the truth about this studio is just about every genre really that was present at the time was being done here so yeah in the yeah in the pop realm or maybe crossover type stuff you do have like Everly Brothers doing dream and yeah. things like that and Kathy's clown songs like that and then you have Anne Margaret recording here um, you have people doing like Al Hurt doing like kind of pop jazz type stuff um there was some rhythm and blues stuff as well not as much um instrumentals you know obviously um we've been talking about piano instrumentals but uh, boots randolph doing saxophone instrumental stuff yeah. here chet atkins himself you know who was running the building right and producing and uh you know uh kind of you know finding new art doing all he was doing all sorts of things you know um but working on his own records here as well with you know, guitar instrumentals and things like that. So it covered a wide base, yeah. Um, certainly country music, but almost every other genre.
2: Chet was involved in the <laughs> development of this place and everything. He was, yeah. Was he also involved with Studio A when that came along? Yeah,
0: actually him uh, him, and Owen Bradley, who is synonymous with the Quonset Hut, started that with his brother. Mm-hmm. That was the first studio on Music Row. We're the second. I got you. So that was 1955, we're 1957. But Chet and Owen opened Studio A next door, that opened in 65. We're called Studio B, but we're the earlier studio, right? right? Was it always that way or was this just RCA? It was just RCA, yeah. Uh, They would say RCA Nashville, or or, um, some people called it Little Victor, but that was in reference to the studios up in New York. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, we didn't become B until A was opened. And we are smaller, physically smaller than that building. That building's probably three times the size of this. So that's when A, B, they have a C room in our hallway. Had a D studio, which was a smaller, you know, demo or overdub studio used for various things. But yeah.
2: So, yeah. contextually of the time, it was the '50s in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Things were probably pretty, you know, buttoned up and Buttoned everything. up. <laughs> Did that ever change? Did this place become? You know, what was the mentality here? Was yeah. it Was it a party place? Was it sort of, you know, all work and focused?
0: It's a good question. I mean, I'm sure it varied quite a bit. I get the I get the impression that people did have a good time here, mm-hmm. because talking to so many different the session players have good memories of working here. Um,
2: ultimately it's musicians, ultimately right? Ultimately
0: it's musicians, yeah. I mean, I think efficiency was huge, mm-hmm. so I think it was it was fast paced, you know? I mean, um, at that time, you've got a three, four hour session, you're trying to knock out three songs Yeah, that no one's ever played before, right. <laughs> by the way, because the, the, the session players are just gonna work it up right there, you know? Um, could probably listen to a demo or something but that's about it um so i think they were working really hard working really fast i mean if you just do the numbers game something to the tune of 35 to forty-five thousand songs were done here in that 20 year period that's seven to 77 yeah so that yeah right <laughs> so if you do the math and look at it like day by day yeah it's a feverish pace you know
2: it's I mean, amazing unprecedented
0: yeah it really is i mean um and i think that's how you get so many hits coming out of a studio like this is just sheer quantity you know
2: you mentioned session musicians who are some that come to mind for me it's Lloyd Green he's somebody yeah, that you know a ton of work here yeah. it's, you know who, who are you into <laughs>
0: oh man um, I'm a I'm a big admirer of a couple people um, I mean Bob Moore is the bass player that played on God near everything here <laughs> you know' playing stand-up bass uh-huh. buddy Harmon's a drummer I really admire. He was playing all kinds of records here. Velma Smith was an acoustic guitar player. She was playing on uh, Jim Reeves' records and all sorts of things. So thinking about uh, history as we almost always are here every day, this was a recent find. We did a little work back here. This is the break room. Welcome to the break room. It's <laughs> <That's> lovely. <laughs> it Thank was always you. the break room. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind the wall, there was carpet on the wall. Um, one of the construction folks discovered this where the telephone was. You can kind of see where the phone was mounted over the years, and people just wrote their names, wrote their phone numbers right by the phone. So you were talking about session players, right? Well, here's another steel player, you. Pete Drake hmm. is right there. There's a lot of steel players, actually, Hal Rugg, Weldon Myrick is on here somewhere. Um, a couple other interesting things, like the number for Capitol Records, the number for a Cadillac dealership, <laughs> 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 which I'm sure was a huge, a huge priority for these guys, right? Hilltop Studio was another studio, a little bit outside of town, um, as well. So just yeah, doodles and all sorts of things from over the years. And uh,
2: I love how like unorganized it is. Yeah, had to get this down as quick as possible. Totally
0: organic. And I'm thinking like, did people write their name up there so they maybe get a call? Maybe. Or yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like
2: (laughs) sneak in the back door, break room when no one's around, right? Just write your name on the wall. (laughs)
0: Like, think of me, yeah. but yeah, things like that, you know, come up all the time here. It's 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 fascinating, and, and we would have never known this was here, you know, back in the day.
2: So right here, we got Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. Yeah. What role did they play here? I mean,
0: pretty big, right? <laughs> pretty big, huge. Um, Porter did tons of records here, and of course, Dolly got her start with Porter on his show. Uh-huh. Uh, she replaced uh, Norma Jean, who had been the, as they called it back in the day, girl singer on the show, and she came in to do that, and... Um, did, you know did some of her first records here um a couple of great stories about Dolly. Just, you know one of her early sessions she was driving herself here and she had been driving very long and she sort of crashed into the side of the building she drove
2: into the building, <laughs> she drove into the building how catastrophic was, was that
0: like, uh i think it must you know we're a big like concrete block bunker building yeah so basically. more so for her
2: car maybe that's why yeah. the, the cadillac numbers on the wall <laughs> there over you there. Go.
0: <laughs> exactly so i think it took out maybe a couple bricks or something and uh uh, her joke in her book is they called it The Great Wall of Dolly, and a lot of other people say that was her first big hit, you know, mm-hmm. like a couple of good couple of good jokes there, but she did you know, Code Many Colors here, worked wow. on tons of her own records here as well. Um, a couple other great pictures down through here too. We already talked about Roy Orbison a little bit. Yeah, I can't forget Roy. I mean, he's one of my favorites, I mean. Um,
2: the, mi- the Mystery Man in black. That's right. I mean, this
0: is kind of a cool picture because usually you see him in sunglasses, right? Yeah, so yeah. There he is with his proper glasses on. I Piercing guess. eyes. That's right. <laughs> Right, um, of course, this is a, like a promotional photo, but you know, Roy had, Roy had bounced around a lot in his early career. But those records that he did here in the early 60s are really kind of what really put him on the map. And those are with uh, producer uh, Fred Foster, Fred who Foster, had a great vision for how to use the studio. Um, you know, did a lot of things like um, filling up our coat rack with coats and throwing a blanket over it to create a baffle, huh. you know, to, to make sure that Roy's voice could get on top of the recordings and things like that. There's another story about Fred taking apart some pipes in here and putting them on the piano to create like a different sort of sound, like a jangly, almost like a prepared piano uh-huh. kind of sound. Lots of great stuff that he did.
2: What um, What's some of the hits that were recorded by Roy here?
0: Uh, Only the Lonely and Crying are probably the biggest two. Oh my God. But a lot of the stuff, and he didn't do. Pretty Only Woman the Lonely? Yeah, Only the Lonely is huge, right? That's like <laughs> one of the
2: best songs of all time. It's
0: amazing the way, um, again, like the. the the level of production that went into that record, I think, are pretty tremendous. And, and talking about our engineer again, Bill Porter, um, Bill said that doing those records with Roy, they had such, so much dynamic range, almost mm-hmm. to the point of classical music. You know, classical music can be very soft and very loud, right? Right. And he had to rethink the whole way he would mix, starting with the voice and then building the tracks up around it.
2: And and you know, this place was notable for including strings in yes. music. and. yes. Um, I'm just fascinated by that and how they would fit everybody in there and do that. Yeah. It? And then again, on like the few tracks that they had and everything, make it all work.
0: Right. I mean, I think you had to you had to really get it. And any of the reverb or EQ the changes that the engineers were doing, that went down live too. You know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but with the with the strings, you know, there's some great photographs you can find of again, all the string players circled up around one mic, you know, and uh, that was all. The, the other great thing is all is you know, as much as they tried to control the sound of everyone playing, there was spill, or what we call bleed, getting into every mic, and I think that gives you a lot more sense of the room that you're in when you add all that together, and so you get a lot of sort of room tone on these records, and it leaves like a little sonic imprint, I think, you know. For years now, you've had to climb the ladder to get to the echo chamber, so that's what we're going to do now. It's safe. I believe that. So up here, just a little storage area, and then we're gonna walk right into the chamber here, the echo chamber, and close that close that door, and you'll get the full effect. This is the echo chamber, you guys. Um, it's part of the original structure. Um, as far as I understand, these walls are probably some kind of like mesh with plaster, so they're pretty hard. Um, and it's really, you know, it's the it's the materials in here more so than the size that make it echoey like this. But we can clap you we know, clap for you me. Know? Okay. Well, Yeah. A little bit on there and uh, we've noticed just by using it that um, if you <laughs> use just a little bit it can be kind of slap backy depending on where you put the mics too right
2: so you said they would send it up here yeah. have it roll and then
0: so there's lines running through the through the walls and then basically from the console downstairs you can choose what you want to send to a speaker up here and um, this is probably the one they were using back in the day, probably the exact same one. It's an RCA speaker. Uh, it may have even been in the studio they were using prior to this one. So this is like a 50s '50s piece. Wow. Uh, this is a little bit later. And it's, this is a little more hi-fi, so we chose to use this. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, you can, from downstairs in the control room, you send whatever you want, up to your, your speaker, it could be just a vocal or a snare drum, whatever you want, right? Right. And it plays out of the speaker, and then you mic the room with your microphones over here to pick up that reverberation. So there's nothing much you can do to control it other than kind of where you place the mics, you know, and how much, how much you're sending up here, how hard you're doing it. So, but yeah, this was the first kind of artificial reverb that they had. Um, and like we were saying earlier, before they got those plate reverbs, this mm-hmm. was on all the records. <laughs> wow. Because not every studio had a chamber at the time. When
2: was this chamber? This built? was part of the original structure. Okay. So in
0: 57, this, this came with the building.
2: And so we're, who are some contemporaries in recording that would have been yeah. you know, having echo chambers at that time? For example, I, I know that um, at Sam Phillips recording, they had yeah. one. Would yeah. that have been later on? or would have that would that been, a, I
0: mean, because I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, because you guys probably know better than I do, but wasn't that the thing at Sun is that he didn't have reverb, so he used slapback? Yeah. And kind of created that thing, right? Yeah, so, so that would have
2: been, this would have been, yeah. Right. That makes sense.
0: Later. Yeah. But so um, it's a unique space, too. I mean, I don't know if there's one built exactly to the same you know, uh, measurements and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but yeah, it's got a sound. And it's never been sampled or anything like that. So the only way to use this is to come here and use it. <laughs> but it's a wonderful thing. I mean, uh, early records here that would have used it. I mean, uh, some of the first records, Don Gibson and stuff, and the Everleys, in fact. The, the, the echo that you hear on yeah. Dream wow. and stuff is this. So. Justin,
2: this has been awesome, man. Um, why don't we head back down to the studio and see what's going on down there? Okay. I'm excited to see what, what just, else we got going. Just hang on. All right. <laughs> so we just left the echo chamber, mm-hmm. and now we are here in sort of this timeline area. What, what do you call this place?
0: Yeah, this is, uh, this is what we just call the front room. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where most of the tours start. In and that, in that, in, You mentioned the timeline. It's very helpful in giving that whole span of the history, right? 1957 to 1977. But historically, um, this was an office and reception area. So um, artists would walk in and actually have to sign in for their sessions before they went back <laughs> yeah. into the studio to do them. And uh, there were different offices in here, a big window over here as well. But this was added on, actually this whole hallway bit was added on in 1961. So the original, original, original building ended on that wall Mm -hmm. over there. And so we're in the yard right now. (laughs) We're out in the grass. Um, A lot of great images that you see on this wall. This is the press release when we first opened. And that kind of shows you what I'm talking about there. So it's just a little entryway, the break room, and then the control room in in the studio. And these double doors back here, which we'll walk through later, mm-hmm. would have gone right into the studio. Wow. Then. So, um, great history here. Steve Scholes, of course, is the guy that signed Elvis Tarrer's CA, um, and Chet was working with him at the time. Prior to this studio, they were using another place, which um, is only a few blocks from here, really. Um, it was called Trafco. It was the Television, Radio, and Film Commission of the Methodist Church. And it wasn't a great like relationship, right, because they were working on religious music during the day, and then RCA is making, you know, rock and roll and country records at night. So the guy that owned that building put up the money, about 35 grand, to build this building and kind of solve both those problems at the same time. Um, This was, RCA had been recording in Nashville since the 40s or so, but they had never really had their own dedicated space. So this was their real first foothold in that way in the South. So a lot of great images of people working here as well, the Browns. Uh, In the background of this, you see this is the very first session, which is October 29th, 1957. Her name is Joe Davis, and then two of the session players I talked about earlier, Bob Moore and Buddy Harmon, are right there in the background. Um, Really famous picture here of the engineer I've been talking about so much, Bill Porter there, running the board with Chet, Mm -hmm. producing, and uh, you get a little bit of the background of them working. Um, And this console, we'll see in just a second, um, was the console that did a lot of the work that made us famous. Um, Orbison recording in the studio with that coat rack we talked about that Fred Foster said, let's fill it up with coats, put blankets over it.
2: Yeah, sort of out of, ca- out of character for what we know Roy
0: as. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the Everly Brothers there recording in the early days, sharing the same vocal mic. And also, if you look closely, Sharing that mic on their guitars as wow. well. So that's, a, that's a great picture. And as you come around, of course, Elvis is back, huge record here. Into the 60s. Into the 60s. Um, that record, you know, Elvis is back, he was back from his army service, right? Yeah. Um, and they did most of that in one night. That's, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> in April of that year. and what actually, a night. A wonderful, wonderful chart here of Already Lonesome Tonight. Um, that's a good example of. You know, the Nashville number system, which would be sort of shorthand that musicians would use. Um, it's developed one, by one of the Jordanaires and then handwritten. Over-handed. Yeah, handwritten, giving you chord changes and little rhythmic notes and things, and uh, oos and ahs, <laughs> that kind of stuff.
2: Any idea um, who would have written this out?
0: Um, it could have you know, Neil Matthews Jr. is the guy we think about mm-hmm. uh, developing this. So it could, it could very well have been one that he wrote, but I'm not sure exactly. Who did. Lots of great artists as you come around Skeeter Davis, Bobby Bear, Hank Snow. Jim Reeves, Boots Randolph, Connie Smith, Dottie West. Um, this this photo here is the groundbreaking of Studio A in 1965, and that's our building there in the background. So <laughs> there's more of these, and you see like the mayors here, and Eddie Arnold is here, and uh, the so they made it. They made it all the way it's from '57 to
2: '64, and then yep. the growth was just so good that, you know, what initiated Studio A needing to come around?
0: That's a great question. Um, some, some say that they wanted to be able to do full orchestras mm-hmm. in there. Um, you know, you've got the Nashville Sound thing happening, which is, like we were talking about earlier, adding strings and more kind of pop arrangements to country music, right? Right. Um, because rock and roll had taken such a chunk out of country sales. So one was accommodating a full orchestra. And, and yeah, I think just the the success really of this place necessitated more. And that that building also had office space, and it really right. kind of became a, a hub for the music industry in the whole town because people that didn't even work for RCA rented offices hmm. in that building. So it was a real kind of breeding ground for a lot of music. And it's still there today, and it's still right next to doing
2: door. really well, and doing and, super well. And who yeah. works over there now? What's going uh, on?
0: Dave Cobb works out of the main room, and there's lots of uh, lots of people have offices over there as well. Today, so mostly, Dave Cobb is kind of—he's—he's he's working out of the, the the a proper room, like the—the the actual tracking space and everything over there, mostly. Um, but yeah, there are a couple other studios in there. There's a C studio that's just doing a lot of mix work. A is bit
2: that bit where um, Steve Cropper is? <laughs>
0: Steve Cropper is over there as well in that building. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> yep. This is a great picture of Waylon Jennings pre-beard, right, Waylon?
2: Wow, I so, wouldn't even have recognized that. Right.
0: And in the background of those pyramids, those Porter's pyramids. Those are the pyramids. Yep. So those are hanging from the ceiling there, helping out. It's you know, a cool little visual there. cool situation. Yeah, they almost look like UFOs or something hanging over his head, but but that's what that is. Um, and then you get towards towards the end here. Um, yeah, the history doesn't end at 1977. That's just when it's RCA not, pulled yeah. out, right? So, um, and the the story is that RCA really got out of the recording studio business around that time. So. Um, at A as well, it continued to operate as a studio, but under a different name. Mm -hmm. Um, They started calling it the Music City Music Hall. And this place, uh, how we sort of got into the tourism thing is people started knocking on the door wanting to see where Elvis recorded, right? Yeah, they would. And that's still a big driving thing today, uh, along with all this other great history we have. But um, it's definitely true that people come from all over just to see where, where Elvis recorded. Hey there, if you enjoyed this podcast, Remember that you can check out hundreds more at DiddyTV.com. Just click on the podcast tab at the top of the page, and you can explore exclusive conversations with A-list and emerging artists in the Americana and Roots music scene. Just head to DiddyTV.com and click on the podcast tab. Thanks for listening.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football